I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and you're listening to Writers on Writing. Today I thought we would rerun a show that aired on the radio back in 2006. It is a show with Melissa Bank, who wrote A Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing and The Wonder Spot, two books I loved. And uh, Melissa was a fantastic writer. And I learned recently that she died a few years ago. And I was surprised, shocked, something. Um, I hadn't seen her in a few years since the last time I was in New York and um, I didn't know. And so I want to play this show for you. You may never have heard of her, um, or you may have and didn't read her, or maybe you have heard her, heard of her and did read her and want to read her again, I don't know. But I wanted to play this and um, honor her, honor her life with this, uh, with this rerun of the show with Melissa Bank. Today, my guest is Melissa Bank. Melissa is the best-selling author of The Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing. Her work has appeared in Rolling Stone, Zoetrope, Cosmopolitan, the Chicago Tribune, and many other publications. She holds an MFA from Cornell University and is the winner of the Nelson Elgren Award for short fiction. She divides her time between New York City and East Hampton, New York, and her latest book now in paperback is The Wonder Spot, published by Penguin. Hi, Melissa. Hey, Barbara. So good to have you on here. Glad to be on there. (laughs) (laughs) So you must talk about um, your books. You must tell us so much about, about both of these books, but, you know, in reading both of them, I... I'm really struck with how, and I remember you talking about this when you were out here last April or May, um, talking about how um, you didn't consider yourself to really be a plotter, um, but you write, your your work is just so um, captivating, and you're, it just Thank keeps you. you, it doesn't, you know, it's like, who cares about plot? You have stuff going on, but... You know, talk about that, because I think plot really gets in the way for a lot of writers, and they feel that if they're not great plotters, then then uh, they have nothing. You know, I think that uh, um, as a writer, um, well, I think you probably feel this way, too. You're always really conscious of what you can't do. Um, and, you know, I think... I think for me, it's not so much plot that I feel I can't do as, uh, uh, you know, I, I can't, I don't tell a story that's easy to explain. I mean, when people ask me what the book is about, this this last book is about, you know, I, I never really know how to answer that. Um, it's 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 not about, you know, a small village surviving a hurricane and how the relationships in it change. <laughs> it's just... I, it's it's really there there um 
that what I'm really concerned with, I guess, is characters. And and you always, um, I mean, it, I, it takes me sort of forever to kind of figure out um, what is, it's not so much what's going to happen to them, but there's got to be some pull. And and so I don't, it's not so much that I don't, that I I don't have, um, I mean, I think there's always got to be something that pulls it along, and it's it's the story, but it's some it's sort of some something that's harder to define, some kind of tension or question or event or relationship or something that gives it tension. So I I've sort of resigned myself to not being much of a plotter. Plotting, yes, plotter, no, <laughs> um, but. Uh, but um, what I really care about is is a kind of a mixture between that whining. By the way, is not me. It's my <laughs> black lab dying for attention. Um, she's like, well, who cares well, about well, put her on <laughs> biscuits? Um, but but uh, but you know. Um, where was I? Where was I, Barbara? You 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 were saying that plotting. You you may not be a plotter, but you're plotting. Yeah, I mean, I think there always has to be something for those characters or that setting to kind of attach to that keeps it moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's that often takes me a long time to get to. Um, what I started to say was, I'm I'm interested in I'm interested in real people. Um, and, and that's not always sort of, I mean, or, or I should say I'm interested in characters who, who seem like real people. And also sort of, I guess, like the intersection between that kind of realism and drama. Um, something, especially in a short story, there's something that has to be revealed or something that changes or some push. Um, that is it's sort of what I consider some kind of drama. Mm-hmm. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Writers on Writing, and I'm with Melissa Bank, author of The Wonder Spot. Um, as I read The Wonder Spot, I very much saw it as um, a novel of interconnected short stories. Mm-hmm. And I don't—is that how you wrote it? Is that how it was meant, or or did you? Was it a novel? I mean, were you? It's not a novel to me. I mean, partly I I I I, I can't think of it as a novel because. Um, because in my own mind, I don't know how to write a novel, um, and <laughs> and I thought of it, I guess, you know, as a life, kind of episodes in a life, um, and uh, you know, I, I think that I think that um, Philip Roth has a, has an expression that I really like, which is finding your freedom. What helps you find your freedom as a writer, and um, and. I think that um, for me, short stories feel less. It feels like I, I like I can invent the form, which sounds ridiculous. Except that um, it's something that I kind of would say to anybody, any writer, any student. In that, um, whatever makes you feel like free is is uh, you know whatever helps you to write. Um, is, you know, is, um, God, sorry, (laughs) 
whatever, you know, for me, I get a sense of freedom in short stories that I, I feel like, you know, a novel, when I even hear the word novel or the idea that I've written a novel, I go back to kind of a high school English class and, and you know, the, the teacher at the board kind of diagramming rising action. Um, whereas in, in stories or interconnected stories, I don't feel like I have to worry about anybody else's rules about form. I can tell the story that's dictated by the story itself in whatever way suits it. It's much more organic for me. And everybody called this a novel, and, and, um, and, and that's fine. I think it reads like a book. I mean, it's very, it, it all goes together. It's not like they're just little pieces. They do, I hope, kind of build um, and create some larger thing. But I think a novel, I guess, I think of as having more of, um, more of a, a kind of formal structure, which is just ridiculous because there are plenty of great novels that, that don't sort of abide by any rules. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you, uh, have, have you heard from editors or agents not to write short stories that this better be a novel? No, I never heard that. I mean, I did from, I did, you know, you, you heard it a lot, or I heard it a lot early on that, you know, editors or or uh, literary agents would just be interested in novels because nobody wants to read short stories, blah, blah. But I, I, I think that, you know, I think that, you know, as a writer, there are, there are generally um, very few <laughs> rewards other than the work itself. So you have to sort of not think very much about what other people tell you is marketable or you can't really second-guess the market or think in those terms. I think you just, you know, it's, it, it, it has to be what you yourself are compelled to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, you know, I mean, I also just think that a lot of people think of short stories as being closer to poetry. And that's why, you know, as a very, very literary form, in other words, a form that isn't, they're not going to understand. And that's, I think, what, you know, why sometimes short stories, people think of short stories as not saleable or not commercial because, you know, not enough people feel like they understand them or something. Hmm. But, you know, you understand a good short story. Yeah, you do. Um, poetry, I... I uh recall you talking about Billy Collins. Yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan of Billy Collins. Have you been a poet? Have I? Yeah. God, no. So talk about that, because I think I think writers think if they're not aiming for for poetry to be a poet, then what need have they of poetry? Well, especially... Um, you know, one of my best friends actually is a poet, and I and I became a, I I learned about Billy Collins when she went to graduate school, when she went to the MFA program at Sarah Lawrence, and she was reading all these great poems to me, and I just fell in love with his poetry. What's different about Billy Collins for me than what my own concept of poetry is is that I understand it. And it's funny, and it's just, I mean, in some ways I think it's just the highest form. Um, and, you know, uh, when you read a Billy Collins poem, his, his new book is called The Trouble with Poetry, and you read mm-hmm. his poems, they're, they're just, you know, they're hilarious, and they're so telling about your own life. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like, it's not like um, that, uh, 
that feeling that I used to get, which is, well, that's not for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't really understand what's going on here. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just, it's, it's much more in some ways, I mean, Billy Collins is a completely lucid, accessible poet, but other poets who, um, I'm actually a fan of that, um, Writer's Almanac, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I get every day and listen to Garrison Keillor read a poem. And it's just, it's not about kind of understanding it in, in a direct way all the time. It's much more about something that comes over you. And if you just let it come over you, um, and you, and you don't sort of, you know, worry about getting it or saying what it's about, um, I mean, you can enjoy a song without even kind of knowing what it's really about. You just enjoy it. And poetry is kind of the same way, I think. Mm-hmm. Plus, even though I'm, I've never written poetry, I really care about sound in writing. And I pay a lot of attention to, um, to, to the sound of a sentence or the sound of a, of a, um, of a uh, paragraph. And especially a short story to me is very much like a sound. It has rhythm and, you know, sort of refrains, and it's, it can be very single-minded the way a song is. Um, so, I mean, I, I, it's always sort of surprising to me that my work has been translated because I think, like, so much of the humor is about sound and mm-hmm. rhythm. Mm-hmm. Do you read your work aloud when you're, when you're writing it or when you're in draft mode or revision mode, I should say? Well, I read, I, I find it's incredible, incredibly useful for me to read my work aloud to other people. Like, I have one very dear friend who is willing to actually listen to me read aloud. <laughs> And it really helps because I can hear what's wrong immediately. And I can also hear things that are right that I wouldn't have been able to understand while I was just reading it myself on the page. Um, but I also feel that there's an enormous danger in sort of today's publishing and literary culture of the performance, which is part of, of selling your book now. You kind of go on the road like a snake oil salesman. <laughs> and... You know, you, you you go to all these places and read, and you know, um, it, it's an odd thing. Partly because books are not meant to be read aloud um, in the way that you know a play is meant to actually be performed, and it can influence the way you write. Um, I mean, I I actually particularly went to, you know, gave a lot of readings and also performed at the Montreal Comedy. Uh, festival or whatever it's called and you know when you're performing you want people to laugh and you want an instant reaction you want to know that you have people and you know uh, you have much more leeway when you're writing what would make for a really great um, performance or great reading in a bookstore, which might be a lot of, you know, caca jokes, um, <laughs> is not what's necessarily going to make for a good, uh, a, a, a book that, that reads well, you know, on the page. Hmm. Yeah, I, I must say, though, I, I, uh, read both books, um, as a book on CD. Oh really? I'm a, I'm a, I love doing that. Too. I loved hearing you read these books. Oh, I thank think you. So many authors. I mean, you hardly ever see an author or listen to an author reading their own book. And once when I did, I was really discouraged with the sound of the author's voice. I'm like, oh my yeah. gosh, she should not be reading her book. But um, it was wonderful to hear you read your stuff because 
I don't know. I don't know. You just you're a wonderful reader, but it 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 really just um, made your stories even more immediate. I think. Oh, thank you. I mean, I I actually really care about about reading. Um, I I love to be read aloud to, and I'm constantly. I, I myself am just a huge radio freak, and I'm probably the only person who knows how to use the internet almost exclusively you know to listen to radio programs and um you know there are a lot of plays that i listen to on on the bbc on radio 4 and you know all over selected shorts and i'm always there's a there's a um a website called publicradiofan.com that gives you sort of a listing of you know literary literary dramatic programs that you can listen to sort of at any hour of the day and I listen constantly um, so I, I, I you know I, I'm interested in it I just don't want to be um, you know I just I, I don't want to get I guess I'm conscious of kind of getting trapped in the idea of becoming more of a performer or letting that influence the work in any way mm-hmm. you know I mean I think when you're performing you actually there's something about, and you listen to stand-up acts, and the timing, for example, is, you know, you really need people to react like every third second, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's got to be kind of this immediate engagement, and it's, it's, it's very noisy in a certain way, whereas I think a lot of what writing, really good writing does is sort of provide this quiet um, in a reader's head, and there's a kind of intimacy that has to do with one mind to another. It's not really being spoken to, you know. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Writers on Writing on 88.9 FM KUCI. I'm with Melissa Bank, author of The Wonder Spot and The Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing. Will you talk about um, how The Girl's Guide came about and maybe give us a little... Uh, a little background as to what you were doing before that book was published. I have this image of you on a bike riding down, you know, Madison Avenue with, uh, in the winter. Yeah. I must have told you that, um, <laughs> that, uh, I used to, I worked in advertising yeah. and I used to, uh, I used to actually, you know, I was a, I was a copywriter, a terrible, terrible copywriter. <laughs> and I used to, ride my bicycle to work every day which is in was in midtown and uh and then you know go upstairs and do my job and then you know around 6:30 or 7 I would you know go out and get coffee and bring it back to my office and and work until you know midnight or or later if it was going well and um then ride my bicycle home <laughs> and uh it was probably I mean I think that it was like the only air I got all day and the only exercise. And um, But I remember that as a really great, uh, you know, it was a long period. You know, I worked in advertising for 10 years while I was writing the book. And even though it was hard, and, and I always sort of wondered whether my endurance would run out before I finished a book or before I finished a book-length manuscript, um, because you know it 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 where it, it 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 is sort of it is having two jobs. I mean, people say like don't quit your day job, and but really being a writer for most people means 
you know, you choose to be a writer and you decide how you're going to make a living. Mm-hmm. Um, and but for me, I think I just I I felt I've, I felt that I was really doing what I wanted to be doing. And I can, I mean, I sort of remember coming, you know, leaving the building, and there was a, a, a security guard um, who who wanted to be a rapper, who <laughs> would give me his tape, and, and that was my social life, saying goodnight to him. And then, uh, then I would, you know, get on my bicycle. I always had a Walkman on, and in the winter, I would wear. You know, I always needed to ride, so I would, I would, you know, be really bundled up here in New York City, and you know, with this thing called a balaclava mm-hmm. face mask, and then you know, my headphones <laughs> and um, the helmet, but you know, on my hands, like two pairs of gloves, and then a pair of socks over that, <laughs> and uh, and just riding home at you know one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning, and feeling like. I'm the luckiest person in the world that I'm able to do this. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. That's great. That's a great image. When I look at the uh, cover of of the Girl's Guide, I just see you. Yeah, every, everybody thought it, actually. <laughs> everybody thought it was me. But it it is kind of in the, first of all, I would wear that outfit, uh-huh. you know? And it's goofy and, you know, exuberant. Yeah, it's great. It's a great cover. We're yeah, going to cover. We're going to take a really short break and when we come back Melissa will read to us, yes? Yes. All right, so all you out there, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Come back, baby, please don't go. No, I love you, darling, hate to see you go. Come back, baby, let's talk it over one more time. My heart's full of sorrow, mama aching tears gone 24 hours child seem like a thousand years come back baby let's talk it over one more time Talk it over before you go away. Come back, baby. Let's talk it over one more time. And welcome back to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI FM at 
UCI, we are broadcasting from the campus, and we're online at KUCI.org. As well, you can hear podcasts of many past shows. Um, this one will be up in a couple of weeks, and we probably have, oh, hmm, oh, at least four or five, six dozen shows um, that are podcasts now. So if you want to listen, go to my website at penonfire.com and click on the radio tower. You'll go to the radio page, and at the top of the page, you'll you'll see links to the podcast, and uh, it's a great way to catch the show or shows that you've missed. Um, anyway, we are here today with Melissa Bank, author of Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing and The Wonder Spot. Hi, Melissa. Hey. I wanted to ask you something else about bringing out um, Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing. Now, did that begin with a short story? Did you write a short story, get that published, and then it led to the book, or how? What happened there? Well, I mean, basically, I, I mean, I worked on that book for over a decade, <laughs> um, but it went like so fast, <laughs> um, and it was, it was, it was much more that. Um, I began, you know, there are stories in that book that took 10 years to write that I started 10 years before and just, you know, might have gotten them published but wasn't ever happy with them and revised and revised and revised. And, you know, one of the things that I heard when I was in at Cornell in the MFA program and earlier was that editors were no longer editors. They were deal makers. And so you really had to learn how to edit your own work, which I did. And um, so by the time I had, I don't know how many stories actually made it into the book. I think there are six. Maybe there are eight. But, you know, I would basically, I would make, I would, I did this perpetually. I'd make a list of the stories and how many pages were in each story. And then I would add it up and I'd think like, 132. Well, that's <laughs> almost a book. Um, but, you know, the weakest story um, would drop out when the new, new the new better story came and i mean i'm a, i'm a very i'm a very slow writer anyway so um you know everything takes me a long time but i had a lot of trouble this is for all of the writers out there i had a lot of trouble publishing anything and you know even when i i won that um nelson algren award i i really really thought that that was going to change things and then I would be able to have uh, have stories published um, and I nothing changed and I just <laughs> nothing um, nothing changed nothing changed I mean nothing I really thought like now it has happened you know um, my <laughs> life, I, what, I should just say that the Nelson Algren Award is is um, comes out of the Chicago Tribune they have a, a different judge every year and it's a really great. It's a great thing, partly because it's anonymous, and I don't think there's an entry fee, and it's really easy to send in your story. And you should everybody should look into that and do it. But um, there are about three thousand entries, and and I won. And uh, um, and when I found out that I won, I really did think like everything is going to change now. I'm going to have the life of a writer, and. Really, you know, I went to work the next day and the day after that, and and I, you know, it was probably more than another year or longer um, that I got another story published. And toward the end, I just before the book, before I actually, you know, submitted the book, 
um, I'd, I'd stop sending stories out. I just thought, you know, I, I, uh, it doesn't matter to me whether another story gets published in, you know, rotted Apple Review. <laughs> um, and for every story that's published in rotted Apple Review, I get, you know, 40 rejection slips. <laughs> Um, and I just, I just thought it's just not going to make any difference in my life. And what happened was I did, um, I had a story read in uh, the Selected Shorts program, and um, somebody got interested, and I ended up meeting somebody who told me to send a story to Zoetrope, which was Francis Coppola's magazine. Mm-hmm. It's still going on. It's a short story magazine and a good one. And they asked me to write a commission, which was basically um, Francis Coppola came up with an idea, and he would have a writer write it out. Um, and that story became the title story for Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing. And once I had that story, that seemed like the mm-hmm. end of the book to me. And once mm-hmm. I had that, there were only a couple of stories left to go. And the story itself got a lot of attention. Um, it has a sort of fancy editorial board, and they talk about things. And it got a lot of attention. And, and editors began a couple, I'm sorry, agents, a couple of agents came to me. And I'd had an agent, and I'd actually broken up with her um, because uh, she wasn't selling anything. And I just, I was too nervous around her. And anyway, I... Um, I felt, you know, I, I I felt what you should never feel with an agent, which is I would make a, you know, a list of things that I was going to talk to her about, so that I wouldn't waste her time before I, you know, before I called, I'd have this list in front of me. <laughs> and uh, but so anyway, these agents came to me, and I actually went to an agent who I'd worked for after college and really liked. And you know, after years and years and years of barely getting anything published, all of a sudden she sent, she became my agent like on a Tuesday morning and Tuesday afternoon, she sent my stories to a dozen publishers and Wednesday morning, 10 of them wanted to buy it. Mm. So it was sort of like this whirlwind, you know, this, yeah. you know, so then it's called kind of an overnight success, <laughs> a 12 year overnight success. Um, and then, you know, and that's how it happened. So I think, you know, I think when you're starting out or not starting out, when you're, before you have a book published, you're really dying for that affirmation. You're dying for it. And, and, um, you don't really feel like you're, you know, you're a writer out in the world in, in a way until it happens. But I think it's once you sort of give up that need and you say, I'm a writer because I write, you know, instead of watching TV or shopping online or, you know, <laughs> um, going out for dinner every night, I, I actually sit down and write. Um, once you actually, I, I mean, my sort of idea is that, you know, when you, whenever you ask the world to tell you who you are, you're in trouble. Mm. And you're, in a way, I think you get punished <laughs> if you don't get what you need. But by the time I was having that book published, I, I, uh, I didn't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't like I wasn't happy or it didn't change my life. It did. But I didn't need, I didn't need it the way I once had. Yeah. So, so during that time, how did you, I mean, it's like rejection can be so demoralizing and paralyzing. And how would you deal with it? And at what point did you just kind of let go of 
worrying. You know, the only thing that I ever found helped me get over rejection was writing. I mean, it's so, it really is so debilitating. But the fact is, um, rejection is part of writing. It's, 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 I mean, uh, except for a very few brilliant teenagers, um, you know, what writing involves is getting rejected. <laughs> I mean, it's really like, uh, it's really like being a boxer and going into the ring and you just, you're going to get hit and you just have to keep, you know, if you get knocked out, you have to stand up. My, my own theory is that it's, it's just an endurance test. I mean, I think it takes a very small amount of talent and an enormous amount of endurance and a, and a certain stomach that can handle failure mm-hmm. um, or rejection because that's, that, is, that is what's involved. You know, whether you're a good writer, you're not a good writer, it takes most writers a long time to figure out not only a voice, um, whatever that means, but, but what they should be writing about and how. It, it, I, I, you know, I think there are some people who, you know, who learn in some way relatively early. But for most writers I know, it takes a long time, and the impatience about getting published or the desire to get published is really understandable. And yet, um, wanting acceptance is 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 not actually, it's not what's going to make you a better writer. You're listening to Writers on Writing. I'm with Melissa Bank, author of The Wonder Spot and Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing. So how do you know when it's working? Do you, um, at this point, is it just something you know and you feel? Are there points along the way when you're working on, on a chapter or a story that you just, you know, trash the whole thing because it's going in the wrong direction? You know, what are you listening to or how are you judging? That's such a good question. I mean, for me, I spend an enormous amount of time kind of at the rim of a story, which is to say it takes me a long time to find my way in. I might have some idea of what it is I want to write or some, you know, some line of dialogue or some notion of a character, but finding my way into it. Um, so that, uh, you know, I, I'm actually, um, for me, the state, and I really trust it, is, um, is, is a kind of a dream state when I'm not thinking about whether it's good or not, and I'm not kind of, um, there's, there, there aren't mechanics involved. Before I'm in that state, I am like a flightless bird, and um and the only thing that i really know is where i'm not i mean the basic idea is to kind of get to a state where i'm not in control but um i don't i i don't abandon i don't really abandon things um once i'm in i i i abandon things on the outside meaning I, for example, I got a, a great assignment recently from the Washington Post. They're going to have a summer reading issue. And I really adore this editor um, who I, I worked on a memoir piece with last year. And he sent me a bunch of f- photographs. And, 
And I was the, the assignment is like I pick a photograph and then I write a story that is inspired by the photograph. And the photograph I picked was this great, beautiful photograph of an older couple, maybe in their late 70s or 80s. And it's clear that the man is kind of in a demented state. And the woman, his wife, I assume, is looking at him with this just complete concern and love. And it's just this great moment. I thought, I'm going to write that. And I worked on it. I must have worked on it for, you know, two months, hours and hours and hours, and I just couldn't find my way in. I couldn't get the voice of the wife. I tried, you know, a child, you know, one of their children. I I sort of pulled back and thought about the family and what it would mean to have a father who who has Alzheimer's. But it uh, it, it wasn't my story to tell. And, and and it wasn't so much like, well, I realized this wasn't any good. It was I wasn't getting in. And by getting in, I kind of mean there's a certain moment when the prose has a kind of um, life of its own. There's tension, or there's there's something there's some something interesting going on, and I just never got there. Mm-hmm. Um, once I'm in, I'm not judging it. I'm not saying, well, you, you know, you can't, you're not doing a very good job here. This isn't interesting. Once I'm in, I'm not asking any of those questions. I'm not involved. It's not, there's no ego involved. I'm not being, you know, I'm not judging it or being critical. I'm in something. Um, and I never let go of that. Hmm. My my sense, too, is that you're not worried about, oh, I don't know, people reading over your shoulder, you're not worried about a parent or a sibling or a friend, that you're just putting it out there? Well, I mean, the basic thing about that is that if you're going to write a character, you're going to write something that's based on somebody else's life or is modeled after somebody you know, uh, you, you, you actually risk losing that person. There's no question about it. And if you don't want to lose that person... Um, you have to include them in the process. Um, but I don't, I, I try not to worry about it. But, you know, on the other hand, I've never written a word about my sister. Mm-hmm. And I never will. Yeah. I don't think she could take it. I don't think she would like it. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't risk, you know, I wouldn't risk that relationship. Mm. Will you read to us? I would love to. That would be great. And if you just tuned in, you're a little bit late, but um, we have Melissa Bank for a few more minutes, and she's about to read from The Wonder Spot. Yes. Okay. Okay, I'm just going to read the beginning of this story. It's called The Wonder Spot. Seth talks me into going to a party in Brooklyn. He says that we can just drop by. I tell him that a party in Brooklyn is a commitment. It takes effort. It's like a wedding. You can't just drop by. We can just drop by, he says again, and he gives me a look that means we can do anything we want. This will be our first party as a couple. He says, it'll be fun. My boyfriend is a decade younger than I am. He is full of hope. We drive to Brooklyn in his old Mustang convertible with the top down. Because of the wind and because I'm on the side of Seth's bad ear, we can't really talk, or I can't. But he tells me that we're going to Williamsburg, the section of Brooklyn that's been called the new downtown. After the party, we can walk around and have dinner at a restaurant his friend Bob is about to open there. Bob has offered to let us try everything on the menu to be if we'll help him name the restaurant. The finalists are the Shiny Diner, Bob's, and the Wonder Spot. 
start thinking, Seth says, and I do. Across the bridge and into the land of Brooklyn, we go under overpasses and down streets so dark and deserted, you know they're used only to get lost on. And I get a pang for Manhattan, where I'm never farther than a block from a bodega, never more than a raised arm from a cab. But then we turn a corner, and lights, people, action, we park. Walking to the party, I tell Seth about the Williamsburg I've already been to, the one in Virginia. I expect him to have heard of it. He's from Canada and knows more about the United States than I do, but he hasn't. I tell him that I was five or six at the time, and I didn't understand the concept of historical reenactment. I thought that we just found a place where women in bonnets churn butter and men in breeches shoot horses. I tell him the real drama of the trip. I lost the dollar my father had given me for the gift shop. I'm having such a good time that I forget about the party until we're on the elevator up. I say, maybe we should have a code for I want to go. He starts to make a joke but sees that I'm serious and squeezes my hand three times. I okay the code. The elevator door opens right into the loft. I was counting on those extra few seconds of hallway before facing the party the party we are now part of and in, a party with people talking and laughing and having a party time, and I think, I am a solid trying to do a liquid's job. I am only a third joking when I squeeze Seth's hand three times. He squeezes back four, and before I can ask what four means, our hostess is upon us. She's tall and slinky, with ultra-short hair and a gold dot in one of her perfect nostrils. I feel every pound of my weight, every year of my age, until Seth tells her, this is my girlfriend, Sophie. I smile up at this ghosty, pale, sweetie pie man of mine. As soon as our hostess slings off to greet her next arrivals, I say, what is forming? It means I love you too, he says. I want to be happy to hear these words. It's the first time we've squeezed them. But I feel so close to him at this moment. I say the truth, which is, I feel old. He puts his coat around my shoulders and says, is that better? And I realize that I've spoken into his bad ear. Mm, that's such a great story. Oh, thank you. Oh, both of these books are just, just delightful. I want more. Well, Come on, more books. When, <laughs> when, uh, when we're in our 80s, Barbara, <laughs> I hope you'll have me on the show again and I'll read you another passage. <laughs> It'll be before then. Please. I don't know. I'm so slow, and I only seem to get slower. <laughs> you know. Oh well, these are just just you know great stuff. Great well, stuff. thank you. And uh, I really I appreciate you coming on. Listen, thank you I'm so much. Just, I'm so glad to be able to talk to you. I'm forgetting that there uh, there's actually an audience that I'm talking <laughs> to now. Like, Barbara, it's so great to talk to millions you. of people. But it is. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and uh, you know. Continued great luck on on these these books and in let's see April third week of April you're going to be on a panel at the American Society of Journalists and Authors annual conference at the Grand Hyatt in Manhattan. That's right. On voice is it on voice or is it it's on yeah something. it's on finding your voice. Okay, so I'm going to be uh, talking more about that. So maybe some of our listeners will show up at the conference and I will be there and. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was Melissa Bank speaking to us from New York. Her books, uh, The Wonder Spot and Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing. Just excellent work. And uh, what can I say?
except uh, we're out of time, and that means I need to say goodbye. If you'd like to know more about the show, go to penonfire at earthlink.net. And um, no, sorry, that's my email address. Go to penonfire.com and click on the radio tower, and it will, it will take you to the radio page. I'm going to leave you with a quote by Truman Capote, who said, I believe more in the scissors than I do in the pencil. 